Ron DeSantis. Is Ron DeSantis might be more fascist than Donald Trump and just a little bit smarter. It's not necessarily, oh, we're going to have a civil war in soon, but I'm just saying, if you look at that statistic there, it shows just because the civil war is, is over doesn't mean that animosity just goes away, or you automatically are like, yeah, we were wrong. Hey, I'm so sorry. Yeah, we were wrong. This is the Snap Up, where each week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla help you digest their favorite stories from the world of sports and politics. The, the history books have gotten away with a lot of the bad things that we've done as society because they were non-Christian nations. And just like the dreaded Snap Up, don't be surprised when start bringing you over to the left side of the fairway. Back in the good old days, you could have gotten a job doing just about anything if you sat there and said, I have a college degree. But now, that's not the case. So we're going to sit there, we're going to back on these kids, we're going to sit there and say, you're going to owe, you know, thousands of dollars of debt. And in many cases, some of them pay for maybe twenty or $30,000 they borrow. They might pay two or three hundred thousand dollars in their lifetime with all the compounded interest. And now here are your hackers of the week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Welcome back, Snaphook listeners. Tim Costello, the owner of golf clubs, the Guy who needs to change the spikes out of his shoes, um, your host, and and also Scott Barzilla. Uh, Tom, you you have some good news for the uh, listening audience, I hear. Well, uh, I finally I finally represented the brand, Scott. You know, for a guy with a, a golf podcast, you know, I finally uh, showed up and showed out and uh, brought home. First place last week in, in the league championship on uh, Spark Golf. Actually, you know, and, and I, I'm hoping to represent the brand well this weekend. Uh, we're going to be playing in my uh, annual family golfathon, so hopefully, I can bring back a little bit of money and some bragging rights. Yeah, it's it's nice to you know talk shit on a podcast and then go out and still perform. Uh, and also, I, I had to weather the elements, Scott. We had we had five minutes of hail, off and on rain. You know, I, I had to go out and, and I had to play probably one of the best nine holes I've ever played. I shot one under uh, net, three under gross, and uh, in the elements, it, it felt fantastic. So, were you like the uh, the bishop from Caddyshack? You know, where you're hoping that God would not interrupt the the greatest round of your entire life. Very much so. Absolutely. I, I literally was like, there's no way he ends this one right now. We are we are pushing through. All right. That sounds wonderful. Uh for the uh, uh for the listening audience, just a little bit of peel back behind the scenes here. Uh we got the news that somebody from our Disney trip had COVID. And so I did the uh, COVID test on Thursday and I tested positive. Uh, but I'm still here, uh, it's still live and kicking, and, and we're going to give it the best shot we have here this week. And and what was that like, Scott? Because I mean, you're vaccinated. It's you know, people are seem to be a lot less worried about COVID now. But I mean, it's still out there. It still has lasting effects. What's what's it been like for you uh, dealing with that? 
So I think with each strand, you know, I think we have to preface that each strand has its own kind of, you know, unique qualities to it. But what I'll say is I had a little bit of a cough, which is not something I normally have. Um, I, you know, had a lot more fatigue. Uh, but I think the main thing was, you know, you, you lose that sense of taste, which, you know, eating meals over the last few days has just not been enjoyable because, you know, you're supposed to be tasting something and, you know, wife works hard, cooks, you know, cooks something. You don't want to sit there and sit there and tell her, oh, I just can't taste it. But, you know, that's kind of the reality, at least for the time being. But, you know, I've actually made it back to work for the last couple of days. So, um, you know, wearing a mask, trying to isolate as much as I can, you know, from everybody. But, you know, hopefully no worse to wear. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we definitely hope the best for you. Um, it's scary because there's still so much we're learning about long COVID and, and the after effects too. So um, definitely, definitely keep that on our, our, our thought process. And and I think, you know, as, as we touch on COVID, right, because you, you, you had to isolate and you had to um, – you know, be alone. And we look back to the beginning of COVID where everybody had to isolate. And one of the main focuses across the whole country, Scott, was mental health and, and people, how are you handling it? How are you taking it? Make sure you take advantage of, uh, you know, the therapy apps or talk to people say mental health is important. Well, the moment those restrictions were lifted, um, it really seems to me like we, we no longer care about people's mental health as much, you know, especially that older generation. I think some of the younger people out there take their mental health a little bit more seriously, but you know, the, the boomers and, and, and so on, the moment restrictions were lifted, it was like right back to when mental health didn't matter. You know, it was funny. I was, I was funny. I was talking with a coworker today about this and, you know, he was talking about the fact that Every time he leaves his office, he kind of freaks out for a second because he's not wearing a mask. And he's like, oh, wait, I'm missing something. And then, you know, he actually admitted to our, you know, our principal, our boss, that, you know, COVID kind of played a number on his mental health. And then he kind of had to pull back, he said, for a second because he's thinking like, geez, you know, is he going to think I'm crazy? You know, what's this going on? And so I wanted to walk this through with everybody because basically uh, the idea for this uh or this topic came up from two different things. I came up with what Tim was talking about with the whole idea of mental health in general, but also uh, conservatives, their favorite boogeyman that we're talking about gun violence is mental health. Uh, you see a mass shooter. Usually the whole idea is, well, they're mentally ill. Uh, what are you going to do? So part of the idea for this episode is, yeah, let's talk about, what are we going to do? Because, you know, I absolutely agree with you. I, I have a master's in, in school counseling. That means that I can counsel children through academic questions. Um, I cannot, uh, certainly cannot diagnose anybody and I can't do any hardcore counseling, but, you know, I have, you know, a bit of a knowledge in the mental health field. And so I absolutely agree. We have a mental health now, let's say a crisis, but we have mental health issues in this country that we need to address. So instead of just using that as an excuse for gun violence, let's sit down, let's address it. And I think, Scott, too, if you look at the history of our, our country, we've always had some mental health issues. It's just that 
we've never taken them seriously. I mean, you can take it back to, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s when Dr. Kellogg had his, you know, sanitarium when people would go and, and get away and relax and he charged absorbent amounts of money to go into the middle of country and eat granula with milk. And it was only available for the rich. And it was something that wasn't really mental health. It was just, you know, rich people wanting to get away and, and rest and, and relax. And so we've never taken mental health seriously. We, we had a little stretch in COVID. We've gotten better as, as a society, but like, I mean, think of before COVID 2019, could you imagine calling into your boss and, and saying, I'm not coming in because I need a mental health day? I mean, you're fired. Yeah, we, we, we do that in teaching, though. I mean, we have like, you know, most districts you get 10 days a year. And so I'm sure your wife is getting that amount. Per yeah, year. but you never use them. Like like any teacher, you, it's, you've got to be sick as all get out to use those sick days. Because as my wife will tell you, it's such a pain in the ass to book and plan for stuff that it's not worth taking the day. That's true. And, and when I was a regular uh, teacher, that was definitely a consideration. I think, you know, it came up with me when I, I had my health scare a few years ago. Um, luckily, I had those days saved up. Uh, and so I was able basically to take off from like April 1st on until the end of the school year. There's still have some days left. Um, you know, what you mentioned about the 1800s and 1900s, I, you know, and I think this is probably, you know, a worldwide attitude, certainly back then. I mean, we, we, we have Sigmund Freud as our first major psychologist, you know, towards the beginning of the 20th century. And he's dabbling in cocaine and all kinds of stuff. So I don't know how serious we want to take his theories. I guess, you know, what makes mental health, and, and, and this is where I think in the United States we talked about health care. We don't take health care seriously. So it makes perfect sense that we're not going to take mental health seriously. Because mental well, health – See, a- I, think, I think we take it seriously. It's just you have to be of means to get the good stuff, just like mental health. It, it is it, – we are a country that caters to the rich, Scott. And if you have great insurance, you can get great health care. You can get the prescriptions you need at, at a good price. You can get good mental health care. But you know what? If you don't, 75 bucks an hour. And now imagine you're barely scraping by and it's now you're needing to find an extra $75 an hour once a week to be able to go talk to somebody about your life. Like, I'm sorry, when you're trying to make decisions about where your where your budget goes, that's one of the first things that the people who are scraping by are, are going to let go. So when you're looking at uh, when I'm looking at mental health, you know, there I think there are different categories. So there's the category of I am definitely mentally ill. And here are the facts. This is according to the DSM four. So I don't you know, I haven't gotten the DSM five yet, but roughly fifty percent of the population will have a major depressive episode at some point in their lives. Think about that. One in two people. I mean, that, that, that's staggering. And, and usually, you know, that's related to loan loss. You know, the loss of a loved one. Uh, and so, or, you know, you get to loss of a job or, you know, things like that. But also what's in the mental health umbrella, though, is when we start looking at what, what's our personality type? What's our learning style? 
And this is something that I think is directly important because I was thinking about this and I came up with the, the show idea when I was, I was walking around Disney by myself and I was having the best day ever. And it's like, how can someone have the best day ever walking around Disney by themselves because I'm an introvert. So my energy comes from within, which is what that means. Understanding that about myself is vitally important because what that means is that even though I like being around people, I need time to recharge. And so for people who are introverted, they need that time. And so people who are extroverted, they get their energy from outside, get their energy from other people. They need to be around other people to get that energy. So if they were by themselves and isolated, then they would start to kind of go cuckoo uh, because they would need that somebody else there to bring that energy. And so since most of the world are extroverted, it makes perfect sense that in COVID, when we're having to spend all this time on our own, that a lot of people are having trouble. Now, me, during COVID, I was like, yeah, man, this takes ass. I'm not being around anybody. You know, I had all the energy in the world. Um, but I think learning styles, knowing how our brains work is so very important. And that's something I never learned when I was in school uh, doing my stuff. It's something I kind of figured out along the way. But it's something I acutely know now because when I have students asking me for help and they'll sit there and just rattle off a bunch of stuff, it's like, no, 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 no. Show it to me. Let me look at it and then I can help you because I'm a visual learner. And that's just happened to be the way that I'm wired. But it took a while to, to figure that out. But I think if we, did, we spent more time helping people figure out, okay, what's your personality type? What type of learner are you? We're not talking about mental illness here, but we are talking about mental health. We're talking about the way your brain works. Because what we know is that whenever we have high stress, we know whenever we're worried about something, that affects our physical health. So mental health and physical health are very much related. And so we need, in addition to having like regular physicals, in addition to having that, you know, personal uh, relationship with family doctor that Tim has talked about, hopefully costing less than 75 bucks, maybe, you know, just a regular check-in with somebody and say, how you doing? And that, that's what I was one of the things talking about with the coworker today. We have schools, we have counselors for all the students. Is there anybody there for the teachers? No. And honestly, the teachers have had it, I think, worse than the students. Like, obviously, uh, you know, schools saw the the tax of uh, the, the star results last year dip because of the COVID gap. But realistically, you know, you guys are the ones who have been, say, in the line of fire for three, four years now, underpaid, understaffed, um, underfunded. And yeah, there's plenty of sources of resources available for those children, but there's nothing for the kids. And I think you made a great point there too when when talking about mental health is understanding how your brain works, right? Where um, I, I think there's so much information out there today too on helping people understand how their brain works. There's never been um, more data. There's never been more you know helpful content on on you know brain hacks or, to or tricks to you know, get yourself to set a routine or things like that. And it's, it's so important that, 
we, we take that mental health seriously just to be the best version of ourselves. Uh, I think for me, you know, understanding how I learn was a game changer for me. You know, if I, if I truly understood, cause, cause I, I believe, you know, I, I have some, you know, somewhat undiagnosed learning disorders. Like I think I, I got by through school cause I, I'm a pretty smart guy. I like to read, but like, I do think I, I have like some ADHD. I definitely have trouble studying. I definitely had trouble sitting still and focusing. Um, and I got through high school, no issue. But then when I got to college and I had to really zone in and, and, you know, mom wasn't there to come in your room and make sure that you're doing what you need to do. You know, I couldn't get myself to sit and focus. I couldn't get myself to learn. Um, but as I got older and I realized I'm an auditory learner, I just need to, I just need to listen. And nowadays it's, it's so much easier for me to learn new information. Number one, cause I know how I learn, but number two, it's out there. If, if I want to learn something, I find a podcast from a credible source and I learn. And so, you know, looking back on my college years, it would have been great to know that. It would have been great to be able just to download a lecture off YouTube on the subject that I'm struggling with in school and just sit there and learn about it, uh, as opposed to reading and highlighting and writing out things 10 times over and over again, because that's what my mom made me do. Um, so, yeah, Scott, you know, mental health is, you're right, it's not just mental illness. It's, it's being the best versions of ourselves through understanding how our brain works. So it kind of, um, this kind of, I had an epiphany at Disney and this thing, these things kind of like happen in weird places and weird spots. So basically, you know, you have to follow me through here. There. I think the number one issue we have in mental health can be brought down to one thing, one word. And that one word is identity. And most people, you know, in, at least in the, in the political news, seem to focus on, you know, what is our gender identity, what is our sexual identity, um, and that's certainly important. And certainly, you know, we talk, you know, people on the conservative end, they'll talk about more like what's, you know, masculine identity or feminine identity, you know, what is a woman supposed to be, what is a man supposed to be. And I certainly think there's something to that as well, but I think what, really I don't know if I would say depresses me, angers me I would say it pains me somewhere in between about America is that our identity is wrapped up in how much money we make and I and I don't know if that's like a conservative thing a liberal thing I I, I tend to think of it as a, as a conservative thing but it's, it's something beyond that you think about like when somebody asks you, you know, what do you do you know, well, I do this. Well, you're not very successful because you only make this. And so the point, is, and I think that the crime of it all is that we have bartered down our personal identities and worth down to a statement on a bank sheet. Now, what I can tell you is I can tell you that, you know, my wife and I, if things continue as they have and, and, and knock on wood, you know, hope for that that we'll retire as millionaires because of monies that we saved and in pensions and, and, and things of that nature. But that can't be the sum of who I am as a person. Um, we've talked about teacher movies. One of my favorite teacher movies, just because of how unrealistic it was, it was Mr. Holland's Opus. And I think I mentioned this to Tim in a 
in some show notes earlier. And what and what got you know for those of you who haven't seen Mr. Holland's opus, just to give you a synopsis. Mr. Holland, he was a musician. He wanted to write you know his symphony. He couldn't get you know couldn't get any headway there, so he decided to take a teaching job. And then what thirty plus years later, he's still teaching, loving what he's doing. And all of a sudden, they they cut his program. He's forced to retire. And there they have the ending scene where. Everybody is in the auditorium, including the governor of the state, because the governor of the state just happened to be one of his ex-dudes, and telling him how much of an effect that they all had on his life, uh, you know, that he had on their lives. Teachers don't get that kind of retirement. I've been to a, a ton of retirement parties. That, that doesn't happen. You know, a few colleagues show up. We have some punch. We kind of swap a few stories. And then that's it. And so part of what happens, I think, you know, and when I'm looking at my identity is I'm going to be 50 years old next year. I have maybe six or seven years left in, in, in terms of teaching in public schools. Now, I'll do something after that. Not even sure what that is yet, but that's part of that scary identity. But the question is, you know, who am I? You know, what's my legacy? That's not something maybe Tim can answer because, you know, Tim was a teenager when I, I first encountered him. But, you know, one of the things I, I say about Tim that I'm proud of is that, you know, he works with the First T program, which some of y'all, I don't know if y'all are familiar with, but it's a program that teaches kids golf. It also teaches kids life lessons, you know, sportsmanship, you know, things like that. And so, more than anything that he's doing you know, with the soccer team that he's now president of, he is having an impact on kids' lives. He's also a father, stepfather. So, you know, where, I mean, that's kind of the question. Where do you wrap your own identity around? You know, what, what do you, when you think of, you know, who is Tim the person, you know, what do you grasp onto? When I think of what's Scott the person, what do I grasp onto? Yeah, I, I think to me, you know, personally, it's a reflection of my deeds. You know, that's who, that's your legacy, right? When, um, I, I'll never forget, you know, when my dad uh, got promoted from having his one single Carabas in Clear Lake there on Barrier Boulevard, he, he was given a region of Florida to take over with 10 restaurants. Um, and they, my parents did a going away party at, at, um, uh, Cellar Bar, which was our our little hangout, is probably the one of the worst bars in Clear Lake, but it was our little worst bar. Um, and the amount of people that came back to to say goodbye to my dad, and the amount of um, you know people who have gone on to great things, who who waited tables for him while they went to college at UH Clear Lake, or maybe you know, we're having some tough times in life and my dad gave him a talking to and, and told him, you know, get your shit together. Or you're going to be fired or, you know, a single mom who uh husband just left her and she came in to wait tables and, you know, got herself back on her feet. Right. And you don't think about those things when you're staffing a restaurant, but when you go to leave and all those people come back and they, you know, talk about how much they loved working for you. And, and then, you know, you get to see, you know, some of the married couples that met in your restaurant and the kids that they have, you know, those are the, it, those are the things that I think 
are your legacy, right? So when you look out on the things that you've done, you know, for me, it's, you know, if I can build something with this soccer team, that would be fantastic. And that could be part of my legacy, but it's not everything, right? Like I'd, I'd be just as happy, you know, if people never knew about that, I'd, I'd be just as happy if they knew me, um, you know, because one of the kids I coached became great. And that was how I, I had an influence on the world. So, but I think to kind of take it back further, you know, what you're saying about money, I, I think it, it goes beyond just America and it goes to American Christianity because in, in this country, especially Christianity has become how much does God love you based on how much money you have? If you are rich, it's because God loves you and you are blessed. That's why you have money. And so I think people take that identity with them of like, I have all this because, you know, I'm a good person. And that's why it's so wrapped up together because they truly feel like this is God's blessing where, you know, anybody who really you know, truly understands what Christianity is, God's blessing is your friends, your family, your loved ones, that's the wealth that you have in life. It's not financial. It's it's love. It's passion. It's feeling. It's safety. It's all those things. It's not just having a lot of money. But because we live in America where we just let capitalism run rampant and wild for 300 years at the same time being Christian nationalists, we've now morphed into a country that truly believes the more money you have, the more that Jesus loves you, you know, most, most white people in this country are, are outward Christians where they need everybody to know that they love Jesus. I'm not saying everyone, but I'm saying a lot. And so when you combine all those things together, you get very wrapped up in your self-worth because your self-worth is how good of a Christian you are. And I think that's why they go together the way they do here, Scott. This, uh, before I get to my next point, I wanted to tell a quick story that I think will amplify what Tim just said. Uh, and this is something that happened to me back when I was in college. So one of the hangouts that we used to do at TCU, uh, we used to go to downtown Fort Worth. And downtown Fort Worth was, you know, a great place to hang out, mainly because the Bass Brothers were multimillionaires. And so one of the things that they did is they donated money for private security so that, you know, all these rent-a-cops, as some people might call them, would go on horseback and kind of go through the city. And so, you know, we could, you know, as students, we could go down there, we could park and walk around, not really be hassled, you know, which is not, you know, normal for, you know, a major metropolitan area downtown. But I remember going to a, there's a Whataburger. And I think at any one time in Texas, for those of y'all who are listening outside of Texas, I think that at any one time, half of the state can be found in an HEB, a Bucky's, or a Whataburger. That's that's just, you know, kind of life in Texas, right? So one night we come upon this homeless guy. And he's hungry. He's asking for some food. And so the people I was with, they decide that, okay, we're going to get this guy a Whataburger. Just like, yeah, great. That, that's, that's a good idea. But a couple of them get this idea and said, like, we're not going to give you this Whataburger unless you, the homeless guy, accepts this Bible. 
that we're going to give you. So I was sitting there thinking about that. Even at the time, I was sitting there thinking, so you're assuming he's not a Christian because he's homeless. So you're assuming that in order to be, if you were a Christian, you wouldn't be homeless? So that's your, that's your assumption? Okay. Because, you know, even, even if we look at riches in terms of family and friends, and you know, there are people who might be ardent believers who, I mean, I think most people, and this is what's scary in America, and I think this is what kind of motivates people in America, is that there's that deep, dark fear that most Americans understand that they are literally one month away from being that homeless person. Because you think about it, I lose my job. Okay, do I have family that could support me? Do I have family that wants to support me? Okay, let's say both, you know, or I lose my job because I'm sick. So now not only do I not have my job, but I don't have my insurance anymore because my insurance is tied to my work. And all of a sudden I have all these hospital bills. And most people are literally in this country, a majority of people are probably four to six weeks of just bad things happening away from being that person. And I think they deep down know that. And I think it's even I think it's even worse than that. I think I think a majority of this country, Scott, is a cancer diagnosis away from being bankrupted. Like people don't realize how expensive it is to to fight cancer. And so, you know, even with health insurance, the hospital, the chemo, the missing of work, all that stuff, if you don't have a fantastic employer who's willing to work with you, you're screwed. And so I think a lot of people are are one really bad health diagnosis, you know, cancer away from, from losing it at all. So before we get to the, like the serious bare bones, political slash social, what are we going to do about mental health? I want to do something a little bit fun here. Uh, worthwhile, and that is, I want you to. I want to do this. Do this for Tim. Uh, let Tim do this, but I'll do this first. Open it up. So think about you know one or two adults that weren't our parents that had a profound impact on our lives, and just like Tim, uh, I grew up at St. Bernadette's, and so I went through the program just like Tim did years later where I became an adult volunteer. And, and one of the reasons I became an adult volunteer was a, there was a guy by the name of Bob Lewandowski. Uh, I, you know, I haven't seen Bob in a while. I don't know if Bob is still with us. Uh, I hope he is. Uh, he was just so wise. Uh, he was able to sit there and quote the Bible. He was able to sit there and quote Pink Floyd and other, you know, classic rock bands. I mean, he could, he came up with stuff that um, just seemed to be so right in the moment. And whenever I thought that I was coming up with something deeply profound as a 16, 17 year old would come up with, you know, he would be there to kind of gently correct me, kind of push me in the right direction. But, you know, he kind of, he was that rock, you know, that all of us could lean on. He's an older guy. He was probably in his 50s back when I was, you know, going through. So, I mean, 
But I, he's a guy that I remember who is just a you know, super nice guy, super humble guy, and a guy that I think, you know, kind of stoked my desire to, you know, to give back more when I became an adult, which is something I try to pass on. And I don't, and I don't know how successful I am. You know, legacies are so hard. Um, what I do know is I enjoy Facebook because I get a lot of ex-students on Facebook because I want to see them be successful. I want to see them living their best lives. I want to hope that maybe I had some small part in, in making that happen. But Bob Lewandowski for me is the one guy I can think of from the past. I'll let Tim you know, kind of jump in here and see if he has a, a few folks that he can think of. Yeah, I, I think everybody's got people in their life, Scott, who besides their parents help mold who they are. I think first and foremost is, you know, someone that you know very, very well, um, our, our priest at, at St. Bernadette's, Father J.J. McCarthy, um, was someone who I, I very much, you know, owe a lot of, of my high school guidance to, to Father J.J. Um, and I think, you know, one of the reasons I was so, you know, adamant in my faith early on as, as in life was, was because I had such a good connection with, with my priest. Um, and, you know, I several times just called the office and made an appointment when, when things, you want to talk about mental health, uh, when things were hard, I, I, I called father JJ, you know, in, in, in the height of the pandemic, um, going through the toughest time of my life, I was previously engaged and, and she walked out in the, in the middle of the pandemic. I had no idea it was coming. I call Father JJ. Uh, and I, I'm not even, I wouldn't even consider myself a, an adamant Catholic anymore. I don't go to mass because I, I disagree with some of the things that American Catholic church leaders do, but on a, on a person to person level, you know, Father JJ was, or is, you know, a, an unbelievable human being who um, just, you know, like when, when I felt like he had, when he had mass on Sunday and he, he had the homily, it was, it was just always so relatable. It was always felt like he was talking right to me um, when he would come and, and talk to us in, in confirmation class and things like that. It was, uh, again, I just, I, I had a very special bond with, with, with Father JJ. And uh, on the golf side of things, I had, you know, my private lesson teacher, Robert James, um, you know, was, was definitely probably more than someone who just taught me golf. Uh, taught me a lot about life, you know, and, and uh, I think, you know, Scott, when you, when you spend a lot of time with someone on the golf course, there's just a lot of time to talk. And so um, that was, that was an important relationship for me as well, too. My biggest re single regret, um, the guy that I connected with, um, Father JJ was, was great. Uh, but when I was a kid, we had a, we had actually had three priests back in those days, you know, if you can imagine. Father Mark. We had, we had three when I was there. We had Father JJ, we had Father Adrian, and then I can't remember his name, but we had the priest that was um, from Africa. I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, yeah. We actually had three Carmelite priests when I was okay. growing up. And so uh, one of them was Father Marius. Father Marius was, he was an avid golfer. My biggest single regret is he always asked me, hey, go play golf with me. And I was afraid to because, um, like Tim, and I think Tim's mentioned, I was the same when I was a teenager. I was a bit of a hothead. 
And so, you know, there was probably more than a few F-bombs and S-bombs that, you know, left my lips, a few tossed clubs, a broken club here and there. And my thought process was, I don't want to do this in front of a priest. I mean, it, I mean I'm going to, you know, I'll go to hell or something like that. But he, one, I remember, I still remember this homily to this day. He, during the homily, he read Shel Silverstein's The Missing Piece. That was his homily. And I don't know if you've ever read that book. Um, I've actually adopted it now in uh, in youth ministry. Whenever we do our confirmation retreats, it's become a bit of a tradition where I read that book. And there's always there's one line from that book that almost makes me cry every time I read it. Um, and the whole idea of the missing piece is just that we're always looking for that one thing that's going to complete us. And maybe we're not meant to be complete like this missing piece. He can't roll all the way down the hill. So he has to stop and smell flowers, talk to a bug. He finds a missing piece and he can't do those things because he's rolling too fast. He can't stop. But there was one line in there where he sat there and said, you know, he, he saw a piece that ended up being his missing piece. And he said, well, maybe you don't want to be my missing piece. And he says, and the line was, I can still be a missing piece and still be my own. There's something along those lines. And it was like, and there's always lines in literature. And as a writer, I am envious of anybody that comes up with these lines that get, you know, just kind of just stab you on their own. But that line is just like, wow. Because basically when you're looking at mental health, and this is the analogy and moving forward, you know, one of the things I want to talk about is good mental health habits. And this is something that in counseling, they taught us from the very beginning. So think about it when you're on a plane, I'll, I'll bring Tim into this. Um, when they go through the safety procedures on a plane, what do they tell you to do when the cabin loses pressure? Put on your mask and then help other people with theirs. And that's exactly right. The same thing with mental health. If I'm not healthy, I can't. I'm not going to be much of a help to other people, right? Especially if I'm really deeply, profoundly mentally ill. I'm not, I'm not going to be very helpful. I'm probably going to be more harmful to other people and probably and not meaning to be so. So the main thing, and this is where we talked about the beginning, this is where this all kind of, you know, kind of comes together is that if I understand how my brain works, I understand how I learn, I understand how I think, I understand what kind of personality that I am. I also understand how that shapes up with people who are around me. And I understand that I need to take care of myself and I need to focus, be the best version of myself because what happens is, is that whenever we're not the best version of ourselves, we tend to attract people in our lives who are not good for us. And that's kind of what the missing piece kind of gets to at too, is that and this is what I told the, the kids. Every parent, and now Tim's a parent, so he, he's on this same train as I am. 
one of the main things we're worried about with our children is who are they spending time with? Who are their friends? And, and you, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're, you're probably right along with me here. And it isn't even so much about spending time with people that are bad, because I don't want to look at people as good or bad. That, that's so simplistic, and it doesn't really address the issue. The issue is, is that there's some people that are not good fits for us. They're not our missing piece at that moment in time. And so if we are worried, if we focus on ourselves, if we focus just enough to know, okay, am I healthy? Am I good? What, where, where am I at mentally? Then I can kind of, kind of look at the people that are in my life and I can sit there and say, are those people helping me? Are those people helping me be the best version of myself that I can be? Or am I maybe becoming a less, you know, good person than I could be. And it could be people at work. It could be people we gossip with. It could be people that, you know, when we're around them, we start complaining a lot. We need to, you know, find, you know, the courage to separate from those people so that we could be the best version of ourselves that we could possibly be. And it's, and it's not only the things you mentioned too, right? It's, you know, I was personally pulling from my own experience, my parents moved to Florida uh, while I was still in college. And so out of nowhere, you know, I had a, a strong support system. No, I didn't. Uh, I had a roommate situation that didn't work out, you know, started dating a girl who was not good for me, you know, was not a fit for me and, and everybody else could see it. And I just wasn't willing to address it because I was so much dealing, just getting myself through day to day that I didn't have the ability to sit there and, and, and do the, the legwork needed to say, Hey, this isn't good for me. I was, I was just willing to settle and accept what was going on around me because it was so hard to just get through every day. And so, um, yeah, I mean, being able to be the best version of yourself, understand what your, your self worth is, what you deserve, how you deserve to be treated is, is huge. And it, it changes the way you live your life. When you've got a standard of, of treatment that you'll accept and you won't go below that. All of a sudden, you'll realize I don't allow people in my life who treat me like shit. Why do I want to? Why do I want to be around people who who don't make me feel good? It was it was fantastic for me when, when I turned thirty. Some some switch went off in my brain, and it was I've I've got twenty four hours in a day. I'm not going to give away any of that time to people I don't want to be around. I'm not going to force myself to go do things I don't want to do. I'm not going to go be in a room with people I don't know because I have social anxiety and I hate that. I'm not going to go do those things anymore. I'm not going to go force myself out because I feel like I'm having FOMO because people are at a bar and I'm not there. I'm done. And so that was, I mean, just even that, having that realization of I've got so many hours in a day, I'm not going to spend them trying to please other people. I'm, I'm going to spend them being the best version of myself I can be. And, and that realization alone is, is game-changing for your mental health. So I think, you know, we've danced around the subject enough, but I think we've kind of set, you know, a bar here that I think, number one, I think we understand that healthcare in general in this country needs to get better. We need more people to have access to it, and it needs to be at a more affordable rate, and we need more choices in healthcare that, you know, are not tied to your employer. We need, you know, I, I think 
Tim and I are probably on the same page here that, you know, we're both fans of, the, of a concept similar to or exactly like Medicare for all. Where, you know, it's a single payer system because, you know, in a single payer system, every hospital's a network, every doctor's a network. There's no out of network. So you go where you want to go, you see who you want to see, and your copays are relatively and premiums are relatively low. But I think in turn, um, the Republican argument, I think that has been fairly consistent throughout this whole stretch of mass shootings, which began, I'm going to say, you know, it's not the first mass shooting, but I would think Columbine would be the first really mass shooting that is really on the radar um, of most people. And that's back in uh, spring of 99. You know, April 20th, 1999, because I can remember that day like it was yesterday and I can remember the aftermath. One of the things they'll sit there and say is it's a mental health problem. So let's take a look at that. Number one, is that even a good faith argument? I would say no, because to me, the whole idea, if anybody that purposefully kills another human being, not, you know, not in self-defense, not on accident, but purposely sits there and says, I am going to shoot this person, I'm going to stab this person, I'm going to kill this person. They are not in their right mind. They are, by definition, mentally ill, which is, you know, what kind of frustrates, you know, I think a lot of people when you talk about, you know, the, the insanity defense, it's like, they're all, I mean, it's all insanity at some level. And if I'm going to go in and shoot a bunch of random strangers, I'm definitely insane. So I think the question, I think there are two questions. Number one, does the United States have a more particular problem with this than other countries in the world? Number one. And number two, what do we intend to do about it? Because to me, it's not good enough anymore. For some, you know, random politician to go, what's mental health? Okay. Jackass, what's your suggestion? Because, you know, there's lots of things we could do, but the question is, is that, you know, is that going to make the situation better? Um, is that something we should do? Like, you know, to me, I think one of, if you look at mass shootings, and this is, I'm just going to get the ball rolling. One of the things I think that most of them have in common, not all, but most have in common, is that somebody in their lives expressed concern that there's something going on with that person. Could have been a parent, like it was in Newtown. Could be a neighbor. Could be, you know, a friend. You know, somebody around. But somebody went to express concern to somebody. In a lot of cases, police. And nothing happened. So the question is, like, if I see my neighbor all of a sudden stockpiling, you know, 30, 40, 50 automatic weapons in their garage, what's the recourse there? I mean, I call the police. What is the police going to do? Can I get them, you know, can we do civil confinement for any short period of time? What would... I mean, we saw this in DeAndre Yates' case. She actually went to Devereaux, which I worked at for a summer. She was there for five days. 
they released her. She kills, kills her kids. So, you know, I guess, you know, the, to the opening shot here, so we try and talk this back and forth, is if we agree that mental health is a serious concern, which I would agree it is, what do we do with that? I mean, you've got here, you're trying to bring, not you, but the, I mean, you got to separate the Republican argument from what actually mental health issues exist in this country, right? That That's first and foremost. So then at that point, you got to really take mental health seriously. What does that mean? Hey, you know, we are including mental health in every um, insurance plan. You know, they, that's, that's a law that we're passing. Boom. Mental health, mental health visits are covered. Everybody in America, if you have insurance, you get 12 visits a year covered at no cost. That's a law that every, um, every insurance carrier must carry. Obviously, like you said, single payer, but I'd, I'd take it even farther. I'm, I'm more in favor of socialized medicine. Um, everybody gets it. There's no, there's no, you know, single payer is, you know, is, is a step in that direction. But the insurance companies have destroyed the level of care that you get in America. And the sooner we can get rid of those guys, the better, you know. So I think access is number one. There's got to be better access available to people who are interested in taking care of their mental health. But number two, we've got to start the dialogue. There's got to be more people than just you and I, or, or the people that have those conversations. Now it's, it's gotta be okay for, for three guys that are playing around at golf. And you could tell your friends going through something and it should be okay for you to be like, Hey man, it sounds like you're having rough go of it. I, here's a number of somebody I talked to before who helped me. And I, I just don't think that conversation is normal. I don't think, I think there's a level of people getting offended. I think there's a level of people feel like they're overstepping. I think there's a lot of things that go with social norms that go into, that's not a normal thing to do, but I think we've got to get to a place where it needs to be. And then, if, you know, when you start taking it on the, you know, what reporting or things like that, like we're in a scenario, Scott, where, you know, of the, um, 857 million weapons in the civilian world, as of 2017, America alone owned 46% of those weapons, despite accounting for 4% of the world's population. So at some point, you've got to make, a, a, there's got to be a law on how many guns you can own, right? Like there's got to be, if we can't limit types of guns, then you've got to come back and say, hey, five max, two max, one max, whatever it is. So that way, if, as you said, in this scenario, someone's stockpiling guns, you could at least say, this is above the max. Because we live in a world where you can only catch so many fish at a time. I could call the game warden on you for catching too many fish, but I can't do anything if you have enough to arm a militia in your garage as long as all the weapons are, quote-unquote, legally attained. So, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of it comes down to just laws, you know, laws have to change because we need to change access to healthcare. There needs to be better inclusion for mental health services in your healthcare. It shouldn't be something you opt into. It shouldn't be an extra premium every month to have mental health care on your insurance. It should be included at no extra cost period because we are a country that has a mental health crisis. So let me tell you something that, uh, and you know, I don't know if you know, understand how unique our experience was growing up and, and how lucky we were, but just to give you an idea, 
uh, of the differences between licensures, right? I have a license as a school counselor. I am a certified school counselor. Now, what does that mean? It means I went to U of H Crow Lake. Uh, so I, I'm kind of a cougar alum. I get well. They're they're not they're hawks. So I'm, I'm, that's kind of different. But I took 51 hours, and I took a certification exam. I'm a certified school counselor. Now a person who is a licensed professional counselor, and we call them LPCs, they took an additional six hours from what I took, and they had five thousand contact hours with clients under supervision before that they could have their LPC. Now I want you to imagine that 5,000 hours. I kind of budget that out because, you know, there was a time when I thought, you know, kind of like to do that. That would be kind of cool. Then I kind of started doing the math and it was like, okay, I'm going to be 50. That's going to take me five years. I'm going to retire by the time I'm a licensed professional counselor. But here's why I bring this up. Clear Creek ISD is the only school district in the immediate area that I know of that has what are called student support counselors. Uh, each of the high schools now have two. Uh, the junior highs have one. Um, when I was in school, we had one. Now, and I, and I can't speak for your experience, but... Uh, when I was a senior in high school, I was working on the, the newspaper staff because I wanted to be a journalist, and, and that's you know what I thought I wanted to do. Up about January, February, I can't remember the exact time, our newspaper, we had two editors, and one of them, she committed suicide. I mean, and this is like, she's an all-A student. Everybody liked her. She committed suicide. So... The student support counselor came into our class and basically just had a group therapy session with us. And it was the most beneficial thing at that time. And there is no way, there is no way in hell as a, just a regular old fashioned school counselor that I could come anywhere near that and pull that off and be successful and professional. But our student support counselors uh, in the schools, they do, and I know because my daughter's in one, She's they do small groups. Some of these small groups are thematic. Like if you might, uh, I remember sitting in when I was doing uh, observations, getting my master's. Uh, I, I tailed the one at Clearbrook High School, and he had drug uh, rehabilitation groups. And he, uh, you know, I had a kid that uh, in there that, she had snorted so much Coke that she had a hole in her nostril the size of a pencil eraser head. You had another one who was physically shaking because they hadn't had anything in 36 hours and were just trying to make it through. But here was a guy coming in and he's doing, you know, self-esteem groups. He's doing, you know, drug rehabilitation groups. He was doing like groups on, you know, kids that go in, you know, with parents with divorce. He's doing all these things. To my knowledge, in the Houston area, Clear Creek ISD is the only district that does this. This is insane, in my opinion. Uh, we happen to have uh, a counselor on our staff who has their LPC, but that's just like a happy accident. It usually doesn't happen that way. And most of the ones that I know, 
they're not the warmest, nicest people in the world because they're more or less paper pushers. You know, they, they sign kids up for schedules. And so like if I had a kid in a crisis, I'm like, go down to the counseling office. Maybe I, I don't, you know, and so, and, and, you know, maybe they, maybe they'll be nice to the kid. I don't know, but you know, we need to do better for our kids. You know, if we want to curb violence in schools, maybe having somebody there that can actually provide professionally counseling service to kids is something we ought to think about. But you know what? That person has a salary. That person makes money. You're not going to hire an LPC for minimum wage. They're going to require, you know, quite a bit, maybe more than what a regular counselor makes. And Maybe hiring a second one, you know, is a good idea, like Clear Creek has done. But that takes money. That takes forethought. That takes, you know, we are going to actually allocate resources to this. See, I don't buy that, though, Scott, because, you know, like, why? I, I, you know, my wife is in Frisco ISD, which is, by many accounts, one of the best ISDs in, in Texas. Many people base what they do off of Frisco. They've got million dollar football stadiums they have the money it's not about money if they're if they're not doing it because go look at how many meccas of high school football built across the state of texas you you have money for that but you, you don't have money to bring on adequate mental health professionals in a school building how about we hire less cops let's take one less cop on campus who all that does is lead to more kids with juvenile arrest records when they graduate high school. It doesn't actually make anybody safer. And let's put a mental health professional in there who can legitimately have rap sessions with people. What if, what if every class, what if every student had a once a week group, group therapy with someone just, Hey, how's life going? Let's talk about life. Who needs to talk? Then that counselor can see who needs some one-on-one time, but we don't have that. And, And we have, Ridiculous high school football stadiums. We've got um, New Jersey's every year at Clear Lake High School. Every year we had new brand new jerseys. They do it at all the high schools. They've got money for that. They've got booster clubs for everything they need. Where's the mental health booster club? Because I guarantee you if, if you gave parents that option, hey, we're going to do a gallon tonight to raise money to have a legitimate certified mental health professional in schools to help your children, a lot of people would go to that. I think there'd be some right-wing loonies saying that you're going to be there to doctor indoctrinate your kids. But I think a majority of Americans would be like, yeah, I'll, I'll go to a, I'll go to a $50 ticket dinner to make sure that there's a mental health professional at my kid's school. So here's the other thing I would do. And I would pick us, I would bring in two and I would say one of them is for the students. And one of them is for the staff, because let's think about this. Now, you know, you can ask your wife this later on and, and, and she'll tell you, is she going to, like, let's say she is frustrated because maybe lessons haven't been going the way, you know, that she thinks they should. Maybe she's frustrated because, you know, parents aren't being as supportive as they maybe they could be. Maybe the kids are just, you know, are, are acting up and she's having some, you know, difficulties where she's having to control her frustration. Is she going to her appraiser and she's going to tell them all this? Hell no. Because the appraiser is going to possibly hold that against her. Now, I, you know, there are some 
uh, you know, assistant principals who are absolutely great people. There's some that aren't. And, and that's just the facts. So wouldn't it be great to have somebody there at her campus that she could go to like, and, and just have every staff member be mandated. You're going to go and talk to this person once a month. And, 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 and when you're having one of those conversations in a therapeutic relationship, it's like talking to a priest. You, you can't, you know, that person can't run to the principal and go like, Hey, Miss Jones is about to lose it. Maybe you ought to fire her. No, they're not doing that. They're just, but it's a place where she could go in, you know, and, and you, know, you can ask her this. Would she value that? Would she value like having somebody that she could go into just sit there and say, hey, I've had a frustrating week because, you know, this kid, this kid, this kid is, you know, getting on my nerves or it's not doing what they should be doing. Or I think you, you kind of know most like most teachers, it just depends on the principle that you have. Like right now, I think she's got a, for the first time in her academic career, she's got legitimately a good supportive principal and she can go into that principal's office and have that conversation and, and will not be judged. And because she's known as one of the teachers who cares and goes above and beyond for her students. So when she's coming in, cause she's had a frustrating week, it's because it's been a frustrating week. And so, um, you know, I think she's fortunate in that, but it's, you know, maybe that's, you know, that's part of the development of our principals. If you're going to be the principal of a school, you need to be having one-on-ones with your, with your people. And they, they're not needing to be judgmental. They need to be, tell me about your week. How can I better support you? How can I be here to help you? I, I don't know about you, Scott, but when's the last time your principal sat down with you and, 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 and asked you those questions? It's nothing against where, where you are. It's just, that's not part of their job, right? They're, they're not there to sit down and have that conversation on just a one-on-one and make sure you're doing okay because they've just got so much other stuff they've got to worry about. Yeah. He, my, our principal is a really good guy. Um, I think he, you know, he's a Sunday school teacher, but he's one of those that actually, you know, I think he lives, you know, what he's preaching and he'll ask because he knows like he, he knows about my health issues. And so he'll ask how I'm feeling and, um, uh, that I'm doing okay. Um, kind of helps that, you know, my father kind of taught him how to be a basketball referee way back in the day. So, you know, he's, he's known me for years. I used to actually teach with him, you know, back in the Funny story real quick. My, when I was in sixth grade, before I moved to Clear Lake, I I lived in Fort Bend and I played in the Fort Bend boys basketball league. And one of the referees in that league was the vice principal of my middle school. (laughs) And, uh, every now and then you'd get him for your for your game and you know you get a rough call hey what's up with that and then you, you see him at school and be like hey I didn't forget about that I didn't forget about that call you made and it was it was essentially like when Ken Hudson was the uh, both confirmation teacher as well as CLBB referee and I could give him a hard time for the calls he made on me on Saturday when we saw him on Sunday for confirmation you know, I've actually run into him a few times now because he's still refereeing volleyball games. And so when my daughter was playing volleyball, yeah, I was, uh, you know, I saw him and it's like my, my sister, you know, uh, she uh, coached at St. Agnes. I said, hey, Catholic school, you're Catholic. Come on, let's get the hook up here. Come on, let's go. Um, but, yeah, I think and, and it's the, I think 
you know, the relationships with kids is the same thing as relationships with, with uh, your colleagues. Kids love it when you show up to their events. You know, obviously a teacher couldn't come to your to our golf tournaments. That just wasn't going to happen. But, you know, if we were at a playing basketball game or playing a football game and you see your teacher there, I mean, that that, that is just an instant connection. I think with, you know... I think a lot of principals are getting are getting that way. I think it just kind of depends on you know what their personality is, and it, you know it kind of depends on you know what they want to do in their career. Um, you know we we have some good APs on our campus that I work at, and we have some APs where it's like yeah, I don't know, uh, not so sure, but. That's just kind of the way things go, right? But I think a mental health professional, I think, would be good for teachers. But I think it would be good for everybody. Um, NASA has it. NASA people, there are people there that are there, you know, um, corporations do this. Um, I know that, you know, my wife's supervisor has kind of, you know, almost stepped in on occasion and had, and had her go down and talk to somebody, you know, so particularly probably something going on with me um, that was upsetting her. Um, but I think if everybody did that, I think it would be beneficial because I think you know, it, it's just, but I, uh, but if we go back to the political part of it, I think we need to take more, you know, more seriously because I, I've worked at Devereaux. I don't know if you're familiar with Devereaux too much down in League City. It is the cheapest place that you can in the Houston area where you can get a mental health assessment. The last time I checked, and this has been some time, so you know, forgive me here, three hundred bucks for a mental health exam. Like if you think, if you so think this nowadays a full psych evaluation. Is between fifteen hundred and five thousand dollars. That's just on average, and like a partial one is between six hundred and fifteen hundred. So at Devereaux, uh, they can only hold you for five working days. That's the max. Uh, so at that point, they're going to either farm you out to you know someplace else if you can afford it, or if you can't afford it. They'll just kind of release you back into the wild, which is what happened with Andrew Yates, what we know. And, and, and people blame Russell Yates for that. And I remember uh, Janet and I, we saw him at the grocery store shortly after that happened. We did not even approach him because he had that kind of that look on his face like, you know, please don't talk to me. Please don't say anything to me. People were blaming him. As a, how, you know, should, it's like the only thing that she didn't do was burn the house down. She did virtually anything else that she could do to him. So did he make a mistake or did he, you know, not take things seriously enough? Maybe, but he suffered the ultimate price for it. I mean, she killed all of his kids. So the problem you know, with Devereaux and what I noticed about Devereaux is I worked in one, I worked in the teenage girls dorm. All but one of those kids was from California. And so what's funny is, is that those kids, so basically the school districts in California, they could afford to send their kids to a mental hospital to go to school. 
They didn't have the facilities in California. They had the facilities in Texas. So who did they own in Texas? In Texas, we have the facilities, but we don't have the money to send a kid to a mental hospital and go to school. But that's what these kids did. They were getting care. They were going to school during the day. And, you know, they were, you know, somewhat catching up with where they were academically. Um, But, you know, these are kids that are going through major, major stuff. And so what do we do with kids here in Texas, for instance, that are having a major mental health crisis? Many times when you see a kid doing major drugs, that they're, they're, you know, basically medicating themselves for something they can't understand or feel. So what are we going to do? We're going to, you know, so we're going to expel them. We're going to send them to, you know, some kind of a juvenile detention center when probably what they need is mental health care. But we can't afford to do that or we choose not to afford to do that. I think what it's really going to take at, at the end of the day, Scott, is, is someone is looking right in the politician's face and saying, no, you're a liar. If every single reporter in unison all started doing that, if every person who went to a town hall, every time some um, politician said, you know, guns don't kill people, people do, this is a mental health issue, not a gun issue. If everybody rioted, if everybody went apeshit, if people lost their minds and called them liars and, and threw tomatoes at the stage across the country, they'd have to find something else to say. And then they could stop using mental health as an actual scapegoat and we could we could work on it as an actual issue that it is. Because it's it's not the reason we have excessive gun deaths. You know, mental health is an issue across the entire world. Gun deaths are an issue in America specifically. And so you can't just say it's all mental health. You can't. So the moment that everybody in unison across the country stands up and called and tells these people what they are to their face, which is liars and scumbags. And we can, we can use that. But until then, until there's enough people who parrot those arguments until they go away, it's not going to stop. You said the magic word. I did. I did say it. And so I'm just going to leave everybody, before we go to our favorite segment of the week, I'm just going to leave everybody with this thought, because this is the thought that pisses me off about mental health. Statistics clearly show if you are mentally ill, you are much more likely to be a victim of a violent crime than to be a perpetrator of a violent crime. So when conservatives go out and they sit there and they talk about how, you know, all these, you know, we'll say gun nuts are nuts. It's a mental health problem. What they are doing is they are doing it in a very direct way. They are getting you to hate or fear mentally ill people. When mentally ill people are actually the most vulnerable among us, need our help. They need our protection because like I said, if you're mentally ill, you're much more likely to be a victim of a violent act than to commit the violent act themselves. But let's move to maybe not happier thoughts, but maybe lighter thoughts here. Somebody has stuck in Tim's craw this week. Who is that person or group? 
I actually have two this week, Scott. And I'm going to take the more serious one first. And this isn't one that you and I have talked about yet. This one I kind of just saw today. Um, and it really just bothered me. The, because it's... I'm, I'm so tired of our, our politicians using the government as clickbait. I'm, I'm so tired of it. And the Texas Agricultural Commissioner ordered employees to wear clothes consistent with their biological gender or else they'll be sent home to change. And if they continue to have issues with this rule, they'll be fired. Let's not forget this is against the Constitution because you can't discriminate based on age or sex. But also, why the hell do you care? Why? Why do you care? What do you care if Scott shows up in a kilt to celebrate Irish, or I'm sorry, Scottish heritage on, uh, you know, William Wallace's birthday? What do you care if on Halloween, Scott wants to pull a John Travolta and, and dress as the main character from Hairspray? What, what does it freaking matter? And all it is, is another continual attack on gay and trans people. And we and they do it in a way like this, where it's in the workplace. You got to be professional. You got no. That's not what it is. It is another way to disenfranchise gay and trans Americans and to normalize attacks against them. And they and and they do it in this way where it's all about the workplace. I'm not infringing what they do in their own personal lives. It's it's a scumbag move, and it's a move that just so the Texas agricultural commissioner can have a little name recognition so he can move up the political ballot. It's disgusting. And, and, and that's why he's scumbag number one for me this week. Okay, here we go. I love, I love me some good Sid. Uh, great guy. Okay, so mine is a group called Consumers Consumers research. Okay, and here's my favorite part of this because you know this is one of those you know political things where we're going to name something that isn't anything like what we're actually doing. But they have come up with a new app, and they've and part of what pissed me off is they beat me to the punch. So you know, one of my ideas is I wanted to do this for uh, for racists out there is I was going to come up with the idea of a patch under Google Maps called Widest Route. And I was thinking that that would be my, you know, my corner about, you know, making millions, you know, that I could get me out of the classroom, you know, could get me, you know, sipping uh, pina coladas on a beach somewhere. But sadly, consumers research, they've beaten me to the punch because they have come up with something called Woke Alerts. Now, what is Woke Alerts, you might ask? Well, for that consumer that is too lazy to do the research on their own, they can sign up for Woke Alerts. And they're going to give this consumer's research, they're going to give them their email address, their telephone number, and they're going to send you a text every time a company's gone woke. So now that you can make sure that you don't buy that product. Now, are they charging these people for this service? Of course they're not which gives us to the, the scum boundary of this whole thing. What is consumers' research goal here? They're going to monetize this thing. You know they are. What are they going to do? They're going to sell all of these telephone numbers, all these email addresses to you know, Republican candidates, conservative causes, conservative PACs. It's, it's right there. 
It's like it's it's just a pure you know Republican voting stream right there for them. I mean, it's just set up so perfect. Now, to me, if you if I was going to set up a, a woke app, here's what I would do. I would set it up to where it's like I'm holding Jiffy peanut butter in my hand. Should I buy Jiffy? Is Jiffy woke? Maybe I could put it in the app and they could give me a woke rating. But no, they're not going to do that. No, that would make sense. Instead, I have to wait around for them to piss me off. So how long is it going to take for them to sit there and go, well, looks like Budweiser and Coors have gone woke. And while we got your attention, would you like to give five bucks to Gene Knuckledrugger Smith for his campaign for the House? Or, you know, gee whiz, your favorite peanut butter's gone woke. I know this pisses you off. Hey, Lauren Bobert. She is fighting against public urination in Washington, D.C. Let's send her five bucks, or the next time you go to Washington, some homeless guy might pee on you. That's what they're setting us up for. So we're going to build outrage. We're going to sell that outrage. And we're going to give it to this Republican PAC, this Republican candidate. And then all of a sudden, all these people are going to get inundated with requests for money from all these conservative candidates. Consumers research for basically lying to the public and for being, you know, monetizing scumbags. You are my scumbag for the week. All right. I got two more. This has been a real scummy week, Scott. Really has. This one's on a little bit more serious note, and then I got a lighter one. On a more serious note... Um, star testing took place today. I don't know if your school had star testing. My my daughter, for the first time in her life, had to take the star test. And the amount of stress that this test has brought onto her life is unacceptable. There's, there's no reason in the world that a nine-year-old should be stressing about a standardized test and she's not the only one you know i know i i know a specific kid who took six hours to take that star test today because they literally are a very literal child and they used every single strategy they were taught on every single question that they had no kid needs to spend six hours taking a test period nothing good can come of that no kid can concentrate for six hours straight on a test so scumbag number two this week Texas Education Board. I hate standardized tests, Scott. Absolutely hate them. They are detrimental to public education because they get us focusing on the wrong things. If you wanted to give two tests and just have it be junior and senior year, that'd be a better process to me. Hey, did you learn everything you need to learn by the time you got out of here? Cool. Have a good one. But instead, um, you know, we've got nine-year-olds panicking over having to take their first ever standardized test. And they don't even get the benefit of ripping the perforated edge anymore. It's all on, it's all on computer. You know, that's a scumbag move alone was getting rid of the perforated edge. Like best part of the test was sliding that pencil in there and feeling those things pop. But now you don't even get that. So Texas education board scumbag number two, finally scumbag number three is the ultra right beer company. This is a company that after has used the Bud Light outrage to market their new beer for ultra-right-minded people. 
because I don't know if you knew this, Scott, regular beer doesn't cut the mustard for MAGA people. They need a MAGA beer for a MAGA man. And in comes the ultra-right six-pack, going at a fantastic price of $20 for a six-pack because no liquor store will carry this shit, so they got to mail it straight to your house, so it costs $20 for a six-pack. What a scumbag. It's piss water. Guarantee you. Guarantee it's terrible beer. Guarantee you it is what couldn't get approved for Bush Light is now in this in this ultra light ultra right can. And I, I don't know what it is about Republicans and about far right Republicans specifically, but they need to have their own beer. They need to have their own coffee company with with Black Rifle Coffee. They've got their own romance novels. They've got like MAGA specific romance novels where the main character was an Antifa member who like blamed a, a, a MAGA person for a crime only to realize she was the real criminal all along for believing in Antifa. Like they live in such a, a bubble, such a little bubble where they have their own version of everything. Um, you know, back, back in the day, like we used to joke that we lived in the clear Lake bubble because we were just our own separate little world of, we had everything you need. You didn't ever really need to leave clear Lake unless you're going to an Astros game. Like, that's literally the way I looked at it. We had everything you needed there in Clear Lake. Astros are 20 minutes down the road. We lived in a bubble. What the MAGAs have is is beyond a bubble. This is the COVID NBA playoff bubble that they're rocking where you're kicked out if you let a, if you let a delivery girl in for more than 30 seconds. It is the most delusional, void of reality, self-feeding group of narcissists I've ever seen. So let me just say this. I'm going to say, uh, before I get to your star point, because I, that, that, t- that deserves a little bit more time. If I'm going to pay 20 bucks for a six pack of beer, it better be blessed by the Pope. That's all I'm saying. I remember going to Dodger stadium and uh, talk about one of the more overrated experiences in my life is Dodger stadium where they were selling their beer for, get this, this is 10 years ago now, 11 bucks for a beer. I even told them, I said, unless this is blessed by the Pope, there's no way in hell I'm paying 11 bucks for a beer. No way. But going back to your star point, here, here has been our last two weeks as a campus, right? So last week, we had a teacher work day on a Monday. We took English one and English two star. So that pretty much knocked out two days out of the week because now the star, they give you the whole day to take the test. And so I had to practice both of those tests because, you know, most teachers, you know, some teachers can't be bothered to show up, you know, because they, they never seem to do that kind of thing. The last one, I'm pretty sure I was positive with COVID by the time that I was proctoring this test, feeling like absolute shit. And I'm proctoring this test, right? I spend most of my time waking kids up. There was one year where I swear one of the short answers, one of the short stories that they put on there was about problems with sleep. And I was like, okay, you're, you're just trolling us at that point. Come on. You mean, what are you doing? This week, we've done biology, we've done, we're going to do U.S. history tomorrow, and then next week, we got algebra. 
So we're having to shut down parts of our building. We're having like about a fourth or third of the staff who's involved in, in proctoring this thing. So you're basically shutting down virtually three weeks of learning for five tests. We have some kids that are, have taken the English test five, six, seven times. It's like, okay, what are we doing at this point? We're, 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 we're grading their ability to stay awake. We're not grading their ability to read or understand anything. We're not grading their ability to write, certainly, because you know the writing portion of it has become so convoluted. And, and here's the funny part, Tim. Funny part is our passing rate was too high. So what did TEA do? Oh, we got to change the test. So you completely revamped the test. Why? Because the passing rate was too high. Well, maybe that means that maybe you should raise what needs to be passing. Or maybe, just maybe, that means we're doing our fucking job and actually teaching these kids. I don't know. Did you ever think about that? I don't know. Oh, of course not. Uh, but let's move beyond that. I know there's got to be some dumb Republican tweets because there always are. So what, do you, what fun do you have for us, Tim? I've got one specifically because it was running through Twitter pretty heavily after this specific incident happened. So we all know, Scott mentioned it last week, Fox News settled uh, the Dominion lawsuit for, we'll say close to a billion dollars. It was like 870 something million. So near, nearly a billion dollars. Because of that, Fox has had to let a lot of their high priced talent go. Um, most of them were pieces of shit that no one ever heard of, but then they finally let go of the piece of shit that everybody heard of. And that was Tucker Carlson. And in the wake of Tucker Carlson, and, and he says it was a mutual agreement to part ways. I don't think so. But in the wake of that, out comes this tweet from Pat's world. Big shakeup at Fox News and CNN. Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon are both gone. Could Tucker Carlson be Trump's VP? Come on. Are you freaking kidding me? Number one, Tucker hates Trump. And if you actually do anything about like the world that we live in, you would know that Tucker Carlson is such a money-grubbing piece of shit. He does all this, even though he hates Donald Trump. And we have the text to prove it from the Dominion lawsuit. Number two... In what world is Tucker Carlson a vice presidential candidate? He was a bow tie wearing doofus 15 years ago doing crosstalk. Then he became a regular tie wearing doofus on Fox News. And, and, and now we want this guy as vice president? Come on. Like, just, just come on. So one thought about it, and this is something that I've read, and, and I'm going to need to back this up. So uh, can't, you know confirm this. However, let's consider Tucker Carlson for a second considering his career. He's worked for CNN. He was fired. Worked for MSNBC. He was fired. He's worked for Fox News. He's now been fired. So, where does he go from here? OAN can't afford him. Newsmax can't afford him. So, what I've heard is, is that the Russians have reached out to him. Of course, I don't know if Tucker Carlson's you know, said anything to them, accepted their overtures. I'm just saying what I've heard. But 
it makes perfect sense when you consider about how much of, you know, Vladimir Putin's shit he's been, you know. But I, I think he'll go more. I think he'll go more the Alex Jones route. I, I think he'll go. I think it'll be a combination between Joe Rogan and Alex Jones. I think he will self-produce a broadcast that will sell bullshit on it. And and for that reason, I don't think he'll get the Joe Rogan Spotify contract. I think he'll do more of a Alex Jones. I, I really do think he'll go his own route and 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 sell sponsorships and sell product off of his show. That'll be the way that in my that's how he'll make the most money is is by going solo and monetizing and allowing a lot of these people to come on his show that are firebrands. Um I mean, he's he's a ginormous piece of shit, but he's a very rich piece of shit. Hey, the Mike Pillow guy has his own channel, so you know, who knows? Maybe he uh, can't afford him. No one can uh, afford Tucker. That's the thing. But I can't. But I can't think of too many companies that are going to be all over wanting you know him peddling their products. Um, I mean, he was, there's uh, enough right wing companies was, that will sign up for that. He was losing sponsorships left and right as it was. And that's with, you know, the Fox kind of umbrella kind of protecting him there. I, I think he's priced himself out of the market. And so, you know, maybe if he saved his money, you know, maybe he's got enough. Because, you know, what's Bill O'Reilly doing these days? You know, not a whole heck of a lot. So maybe I, I don't, I'm not going to say we've seen the last of Tucker Carlson, but we've seen the last of him on major networks. That's for sure. Absolutely. Well, Scott, I think that's all I've got on the tweets today. I, I only, I only had that one. It was, it was uh, going down the thread. I did get, well, I did clip one that basically said, um, through the digital exchange captured by the Dominion legal team, um, there's proof that the concerns alleged by Chuck Carlson's ex producer are true. That the show's workplace was defined by sexism and bigotry. So I had that one too. It's not really a bad tweet, but it just shows that like it was not a mutual agreement to part ways. And in other news, the sun rises in the east. Well, I think that's all we've got. Unless Scott, you have any uh, tweets? Nope. So that's all we've got here on mental health. Um, been a really interesting deep dive. Really appreciate everybody who who took the time to take the dive with us. Um, and, and, and again, take your Take your mental health seriously. And, and, and that's just not talking about mental illness or anything like that, but that's just talking about learning about your brain, learning about what works for you, learning about what do you need to be successful? How much rest do you need? What is rest? All questions uh, that go into taking care of your own mental health. Absolutely. So, Tim, where can the people find you? As always, I'm at Tim underscore Costello 10. Uh, and you can also find the show's Facebook page uh, at the Snapbook Podcast. And I will say to the uh, the soccer team, I, I just took over our opening day coming up here May twentieth. Um, so if you are in the DFW area and you'd like to come out and support our team, it's GaiosFC.com, uh, and you can buy tickets on there too. We'd love to um, love to welcome you out to our game. And as usual, you could find me on the Twitter machine at S Barzilla, at least as long as Twitter is going to be alive and among us. And you can uh, find my 
Houston, Texas commentary at Battle Red Blog, as well as the occasional political piece at Juanita Jean's Beauty Salon. All righty. We, we appreciate, as always, everyone taking this journey with us as we keep on moving left down the fairway, as the snap hook so beautifully does. That's going to do it here for this episode. Don't forget to tune back in tomorrow as Scott and I continue our funny tales from the golf course, as well as get you ready for draft day. Coming up on Thursday, and the Rockets got a new coach, so a lot to go over, a lot to talk about uh, coming up here on the Thursday show. But again, we appreciate everybody who made us a part of your Wednesday, a part of your week, and we look forward to continuing to be a part of your week as this show rolls along. But thank you so much, and we will see you next time on the Snap Hook. Thank you for tuning in to the Snap Hook and making Scott and I a part of your week. I wanted to recognize that our intro song is called Energetic Indie Rock by Alex Grohl, and this outro music is Good Vibe by Twisterium. We appreciate everyone who tunes in each and every week and is part of the Snap Hook movement. We look forward to seeing you next week on the Snap Hook.